This message was given at Des Moines Campus Fellowship's summer leadership training back in 2019. The theme that summer was typology, studying the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. In this message, Jacob Van Sickle talks about Ruth. Hope you find this encouraging. Anyways, if you have a Bible, turn to Ruth. Turn to Ruth if you have a Bible. So all summer, we've been looking at specifically the Old Testament and what it has to say about Jesus Christ, how all of the Bible is a drum roll until Jesus comes. And then after Jesus, all of the, drum, all of the Bible and all of history is a drum roll until he comes back. And we've learned about Adam, how Jesus is the greater Adam. We've learned about Joseph and Abraham and Moses and Job, and how we can see Jesus crystal clear in all of those stories. And today, we're looking at a little book, only four chapters, about Ruth. So, if you're there, we're going to read the first seven words, okay? The first seven words, we'll pray and get started. This is what it says, Ruth 1, 1. In the days when the judges ruled. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for these people that are here to learn from your word. God, I pray that you would teach us. We acknowledge that we need your grace, not only your grace to understand, um, but your grace to apply what we're about to hear. Lord, we don't just need um, fine-tuning. We don't need tweaking. We don't need a nudge in the right direction. We need complete heart transformation. And we come to you acknowledging this, asking that your word would pierce our heart and change us. Amen. So there's a guy by the name of Kurt Vonnegut. Kurt Vonnegut. And he's famous for writing Slaughterhouse-Five. Okay, Slaughterhouse-Five. He wrote this novel. That's what he's famous for. But throughout his career, he would speak on writing and speak on stories. And he proposed that throughout all of Western history, most stories could be summarized in a handful of different templates, or he called them shapes, story shapes. And if if you look through the great stories, they could all be summarized in similar types of shapes. Now, this is how we communicated it. So first, you have the x-axis, and this is why it's here. And anytime I feel like drawing a picture, I can do that, okay? And this is the chronology of a story. So at the beginning, you have the beginning. And at the end, you have an elephant. No, you have the end. You have the E stands for end, and B stands for beginning. So this is the storyline. But you also have a G up here and an I down here. And the G stands for good. Where, where things start off for the character? Is it good or is it ill? Now, why not say bad? Well, you already have a B in the graph, so that's why we can't say bad. So good or ill. And he's saying that all, of, all stories kind of fit into these shapes. Now, here, here's an example, okay? The first storyline is man digs himself out of a hole. Okay, so you start average Joe, you start kind of right here, and you get into trouble, 
And then, by the end of the story, you're out of trouble. Man gets himself out of a hole. Who here has seen Stranger Things? Anybody? Now, do not tell me what happens in season three, okay? I swear. Okay. But in season one and two, this is the storyline for almost all the characters. Characters. Eleven, if you've seen it, is a different story. But all the characters, they're average preteen characters, just your average run of the mill people. And what happens? They get into trouble. They find themselves in a really weird predicament. And what happens by the end? They're out of trouble. We could tell the story all day long. It happens throughout many books and sitcoms and movies and so on. Here's another one this one is called The Boy Meets Girl. Boy Meets Girl. Now, this doesn't have to be a romance, but it often is. So what happens, you have, again, you have an average Joe, or average Jill, okay? And they meet somebody. It's a high point, someone really special, okay? And what happens? Well, they realize that relationships are really difficult, okay? <laughs> and something happens in the story, either relationally between the two of them or another guy comes into the scene that's going to ruin the whole thing. And the relationship is in jeopardy. But what happens by the end? Guy gets the girl. Okay? Another storyline is the Cinderella. Now, okay, think of how this graph works. Where should we start with the Cinderella? Below, okay? So it's, she starts, it's a rags to riches type of story. You know, her, her dad dies, evil stepmother, that's always a bad sign in a story. Two really mean stepsisters, she's cleaning chimneys, you know, like she sleeps by the chimney. You know, it's like everything is bad in a story, okay? But as the story goes on, some positive things start to happen. One, she can talk to animals. That's a perk, okay? <laughs> then you get the st step-godmother. It continues to go up. She gives her all sorts of things, a chariot made out of a pumpkin, and hor horses made out of mice, right? Rats, mice, okay? All, all, of these, all of these really good things, and where is the climax of... The top, where's the top? Well, that one night where she gets to dance the night away with the prince. And then midnight comes, and the bells are ringing, and she loses everything. And for a moment in the story, you think, oh, she's just back to being Cinderella. Until what? Until the shoe fits. And happily... Oh, that's the wrong story. Okay. <laughs> it's a really good rom-com, okay? Um, and it ends happily ever after, okay? Now, this idea, um, Kurt Vonnegut, he died in 2007, but in 2016, some scholars at the University of Vermont took this idea, and they said, I bet if we run stories through a computer, we'll see patterns, they took a, this idea, and they're going to run it through a computer. So they ran 2,000 stories throughout the Western canon of stories, and they found that almost all stories fall into six-story arcs, six-story arcs. And this is what they found. 
You have the rags to riches. It just goes up. It's just a rise. You have the riches to rags. It's just a fall. You have the man in a hole, fall and rise. You have Icarus, rise and fall. You have Cinderella, rise and fall and rise. And you have Oedipus, fall and rise and fall. Okay? And what I want to propose is that these stories are not just because we've learned from stories and it's been passed on. I want to propose that these are built into who we are by God. And I want to propose this not because in, somewhere in Leviticus you'll find these six-story arcs or yeah, an angel told me about these six-story arcs. I want to propose this not because of those reasons, but because if you look at the Bible, we see all of these story arcs. We see all of these things in place. So think of these stories, story arcs, rags to riches, Esther, riches to rags, Adam. That's a steep decline, <laughs> okay, <laughs> with it with Adam. Man in a hole, Moses, fall, then rise. Icarus is rise, then fall. Saul, Cinderella, rise and fall, then rise. Joseph and Job. Oedipus, fall, then rise and fall. Jonah. You see these storylines, and we could go through each biblical story, and, or different th- scenes within a biblical character, and we see these are, these are just good stories. These are the stories that God tells. Now, here's the question. Which one is Ruth? Which one is Ruth? Now, as we look through the story, I want you to be thinking about this. Where does Ruth fit in the storyline? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the story of Ruth. We're going to look at the types. Where do we see the types of Christ? And then we're going to look at the implications, that if you truly understand this, it will change your life forever. Okay? And just to warn you, the story is by far most of the time. Okay? So, you know, often points will be about the same length. So when I'm like, and point two, don't worry, we're, we're nearing an end. Okay? <laughs> the story is by far the largest point. So where should we start? Let's start in verse one. First seven verses. It says this, In the days when the judges ruled... In the days when the judges ruled, every good story needs a good hook. Good stories have good hooks. Now, for an Israelite, this would mean something. Because there are some hooks that within a certain culture, it immediately means something. So, for example, in our culture, once upon a time, what is the story about? There's going to be a prince, a princess, dragons, castles, you know. How do you know that? Once upon a time. How do, you, how do you, four words. How do you know that? Well, it's built into our culture. It's like we know, it's been passed down to us that the story is going to be like that. Or how about in a galaxy far, far away? In a galaxy far, far away. What is the story going to be about? Men in robes fighting with lightning sticks, okay? <laughs> you know, it's like with the, with the force moving things, you know, okay? small guy with big ears. It's Star Wars. We're going to see like these things. Some of you are like, oh, okay. It's, it, we know the line. and We immediately know what type of story is going to be told because of the hook. Now, to Israelites, they would immediately know what's going on in the time of the judges. Because if you're reading through the Bible, Judges precedes Ruth. 
So if you're just reading straight through, you'll finish Judges and immediately re- read verse 1 of Ruth. So what does the last verse of Judges say? You know, if you have a, a physical copy of the Bible, all you have to do is just turn one page. What does it say? Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In those days, there's no king in Israel. What did everyone do? What was right in their own eyes? In the time of the judges as Israelite, for it was really bad. It was a really bad time. And then it goes on to say this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. There was a famine in the land. Now, famine, it's, you know, really bad times. There's probably a drought. There's not enough food. Now, we read famine and we think, oh, famine. But for an Israelite, it means something different. It's a motif. It actually happened, but it's a motif. Now, what is a motif? Well, Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Meaning there are certain things that you observe and like, oh, I know what's going to happen next. So, for example, th- th- think of what's going to happen. You're in a desert. There's a, a town in a desert. There's a main street. Buildings on both sides. And it's noon. And the church bells are ringing. And two people walk out into the middle of the street and face each other. They're about 30 yards apart. And people are observing what's going to happen uh, within the store as they're peering out the window. So what's going to happen? There's going to be a duel. There's going to be a shootout. Now, how did you know that? How would you instantly? I know it's going to happen. You all know the future. Wow, that's impressive. You know, no, it's like that. The reason it's it's a motif. Now, if I went to China and Nepal and Bosnia and uh, Africa and Britain, and they hadn't seen any westerns, you know, obviously Hollywood has explored a lot of these things, but they haven't seen any westerns. For a lot of them, be like, I don't, I don't know. How did you know that was going to happen? How did you know? Well, it's a part of our motif. It's a, it's a, it's a cultural motif. Here, here's another example. Let's say a girl goes to her first week of high school, or she goes to a, a, a party, or she goes to a dance, or a festival, or really any place where guys meet girls and girls meet guys. And she comes away from that thinking that one guy in particular is just a huge jerk. I can't believe him. He's just so proud and so arrogant and just, ugh. Okay, she walks away from that first meeting. And you're reading the book, you're watching the movie, you're watching the show, what's probably going to happen? Oh, they're for sure getting together. You know, it's like, (laughs) for sure it's going to happen. Now, why do we think that? It's like counterintuitive. Why would we think that? Well, in our culture, at least since Jane Austen, that has been a very common storyline. You know, so it's Mr. Darcy. It's Han Solo. It's the guys, I don't know their name from the notebook and a walk to remember. Basically anything Nicholas Sparks makes. You know, it's like, so it's like, it's like, oh yeah, they don't like each other at first. Of course they're going to get together. It's a common motif. Okay. So when we read there was a famine, what would the Israelites see? What would they say? Okay, this rhymes with something. Well, according to the theologian Robert Hubbard, he said there are, in two, there are two important themes when it comes to famines. First, that famines 
often would advance God's plan. We see Abram goes to Egypt because of a famine. We see that Isaac goes to Philistia because of a famine. We see Jacob's and his sons go to Egypt to be saved by Joseph because of a famine. It often advances God's plan. The second thing is famines are often turning points in a story. They're often turning points in a story. Or another theologian by the name of Daniel Block says this, anyone who is aware of the significance of famine in Israelite experience and theology and of the relationship with Moab would immediately wonder how things will turn out. So you see a famine, and the Israelite would get to the edge of his seat and think, I wonder what's going to happen. God's going to do something. Now, does this mean it automatically every time you see a famine? No, it's a, it's a motif. You're expecting something because of what has happened previously. So, it's a really bad time, the time of the judges, and there's a famine. I wonder what God is going to do. So what does he do? This is what we see. We see verse 3, there's a guy named Elimelech. And he leaves Bethlehem to save his family because of this famine. And he goes to the nation of the Moabites. And we don't know how long they were there, but eventually he dies. Fast forward 10 years, we see this in verse 4. Both of his sons marry Moabite women, and they both die 10 years later. So Naomi, who's his wife, Elimelech's wife, is looking at, his two, at her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah. Ruth and Orpah. Complete, completely desolated. Her husband died 10 years ago. Now her sons have died. Now, little known fact, Orpah is actually who Oprah is named after. Did anybody know this? I'm serious. This is not a joke. Like, and it's on her birth certificate, but people couldn't pronounce it, so they changed it to Oprah. Little known fact. Um, my name was actually supposed to be Bajak, but people couldn't pronounce it, so we stuck with Jacob. But <laughs> I'm joking. Okay. Um, so you got <laughs> Orpha. I'm, so, I'm sorry. You know, I'm a dad. I have to throw in a dad joke every once in a while, okay? You have Orpa and you have Ruth. And Naomi says, go back to be with your people. Go back to be with your people. Because if you stay with me, you're probably going to be a widow for the rest of your life. And we're going to be extremely poor. She goes back. Who's going to take care of her? They're going to be extremely poor. Go back to your family. And Orpah, she does it. She says, okay. And in tears, she leaves Naomi. But Ruth, she does something different. Look at verse 15, chapter 1. And she said, this being Naomi, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave or to return from following you. Where you will go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. You, uh, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So she says, I am loyal to you, Naomi, and I'm going to stay with you. Not only till death, not only till death, it says that uh, where you die, I will die. So not even to death, it's like even after you die, I will stay there until I die. 
such loyalty to her mother-in-law. But not only that, she has extreme loyalty to Naomi's God. She says, your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. I am devoted to this God. It seems like over time, we don't know what happened, but she observed things, she learned things. Maybe she learned the scriptures to a degree, whatever type of scriptures they had back then. And she says, I want to be linked in with this God and this people. So they go back to Bethlehem. Now, pause. Where are we at in the story? Think of the story arc. We're still really low, okay? It's like, yes, maybe a little bit went up. Ruth doing a good thing. But remember, they're going back, and they're going to be very poor. They're going to um, pick from fields where all the, um, the people that could not make a living would pick. They're, it's a really bad situation. And this is how they enter into to Bethlehem. So verse, look at verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? So they start to talk. Is this Naomi? The whole town is abuzz because they didn't expect her to come back. And then verse 20, what is Naomi's response? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She is bitter towards, uh, what, what is the response? She is bitter towards God. She's like, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. God has been bitter towards me. So we have this faithful Ruth. We have her mother-in-law, Naomi, who's bitter towards God. Change of scene. That's act one. And in act two, chapter two, we are introduced to a new character. And this is Boaz. Boaz. Look at chapter two, verse one. It says that Boaz is a worthy man, a worthy man. Now, this can mean war hero. It's, it can be translated war hero, or it can be translated someone who's just very accomplished. So the first thing we, we learn about Boaz is he's either a war hero or he's very accomplished. And we also see that he's following the law of God. So in the law of God, you would have parts of your field that were for gleaning. And this is a welfare system. So a portion or a percentage of your field would be left for anyone that could not eat. They had, they had no money, they had no food, they would come and pick from the fields. And that, they would either pick and sell it for money, or they would pick and eat it for food. And Ruth is now picking at this field. Not only did she go with Naomi, but she's sacrificing for Naomi, picking at this barley field. And he sees her, and we have a tension in the story of how is he going to react? Is he going to look down at her because she's a Moabite woman? Throughout the entire story, she's referred to as Ruth, the Moabite. Or is he going to see something really special? Well, we see in, in verse 5, this is his response. Whose young woman is this? And the servant who is, was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. So people have been talking about her. He doesn't even have to say her name. He's like, remember that Moabite woman who came back with Naomi? And Boaz would have known, really? That's her? 
And then we learn a little bit more. What does he think? What does he think about her? Well, he says to the man, he says to the man that he should protect her, that all the men that work for him, they should protect her. And then he goes to Ruth, and this is what we see in verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. So what he tells Ruth is stay with me, stay, stay here in this field. My men will protect you and stay with the women that work for me gleaning the field. Why would he do this? Well, if we fast forward to verse 22, we, we see something that Naomi is suspicious of and she's fearful of, that Ruth would be assaulted, either physically or sexually. And remember, this is a really bad time in Israel. The Judges ends with a woman being raped and cut up into pieces. If you haven't read it, read it it's like a really dark story. That's how the book ends. So him saying, stay here with my women and my, the men that work for me, they're going to protect you. He is doing it for a reason. It's not just an act of faith. It's like an actual moment of life and death if you stay here. But does he do this just out of pity? Is it a sob story that he's like, I should probably do something? Or does he see something else? Well, look at verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So he's blessing her, not because it's a sob story, not because he just feels really bad, but because he sees the kind of character that she has. She is a noble woman. He sees the kind of self-sacrifice that she has. So, this act, act two, ends with Ruth coming back and reporting to Naomi what has happened. And what does Naomi do? She is giddy. And she is giddy because Boaz is a redeemer. And in those days, a redeemer, it was a close family member, not like a brother or sister maybe like an extended cousin, okay, was within the same tribe. Uh, and that meant that he could redeem the property. See, what would happen if a man died and he couldn't, obviously because he's dead, he couldn't <laughs> work the fields, a family member would buy it and he would take care of the fields and take care of the family. So Boaz is one of the guys that could do that. So Naomi is just giddy. And also Naomi... Is like that aunt you have that's always trying to set you up. Does anybody have one of those aunts? Okay, or multiple of those aunts? Or that grandma that's always... She's like that. So immediately, Naomi starts to think. She starts to think about what's going to happen, what should be done. And this is where we go to Act 3, Chapter 3. What is the plan? What is the plan that Naomi comes up with? Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, 
My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. Uh, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. So this is, this is her plan. This is how it works. Is during the harvest time, they would bring all the wheat and all the barley into a, like a big barn, and they would gather it all and calculate it so it could be shipped out and sold and, and all that. But this took multiple days. This took a long time. So the, the farmers or the heads of households would stay around. Either we don't exactly know, maybe they stayed in the building just around the periphery, or maybe there were separate rooms, or maybe they were in kind of tent areas. By, we, we don't know exactly what it looked like or how it was. But they would, they would stay around the harvest, and they would stay there because it took so long, and also to protect it so people wouldn't steal it. And not only that, they would throw parties. So think of all these farmers that have been just slaving away, and they're really far apart because it's a huge, you know, it's it's a whole country, and then they come together for harvest after working for months, and they kind of let loose. They they eat, they celebrate with one another, and then they they go to bed and wake up to continue to harvest. So uh, she knows, Naomi knows that this is going to happen, and this is her plan. Late at night, sneak over there, wait until he lies down, lay next to him, like take off his sandals or socks or whatever, he, slippers, I don't know, um, his bunny slippers that he's wearing, okay, and lay there and wait until he wakes up. Now, anyone that you're reading this, does anyone think that's kind of sketchy? Anyone? Oh, it's for sure sketchy. <laughs> it's for sure. Like, we're, we're supposed to like... Read it and be like, really? <laughs> this is a, at, at the very least, it's a huge risk. But when you look at even the words that are being used by Naomi, it's even sketchier. So look at some of these, some of these words. It says, then go uncover his feet and lie down. Uncover his feet and lie down. All three of these phrases have double meanings, and they're all sensual. Uncover means to make naked, or can mean to make naked. His feet can be used as a double meaning for male genitalia, and lie down often means to sleep with. Okay? And scholars debate back and forth, back and forth about what's going on. So, what's going on? <laughs> what's going on with Naomi's advice? I think there are, there are multiple options in here, too. I think the first one is, remember, Naomi is not doing very well with the Lord right now. She's bitter. So, there's a very good chance that she's just giving very bad advice. Like, go shack up with him, and maybe it'll turn out all right. Maybe he'll redeem us. That could be what she's saying. 
Another way of interpreting it is, again, they're double meanings, so it could be the other meaning. It could be just the most innocent meaning of what she is saying. At the very least, this is what the storyteller is, is trying to create, because that's what it was. There's tension in the story. And this is the tension of when, whenever you're reading a book, or you're watching a movie, or even just in real life when you have a friend, and there are you think they might make a really bad choice? Has this ever happened? Probably not. You know, you know, you have a friend, like, oh no, are they really going to do that? Or you're, you're really invested in the character, you're like four seasons in, and you think, oh, they're like my favorite one. No! You can't like her! Like, you know, it's like, what, what is going on there? You're just afraid that this character that you've fallen in love with in the first two chapters is going to just be a dope. You know, so you, you, you start to read through the book of like, what's going to happen with Boaz and Ruth? They seem to be high caliber, God loving, high character type of people. What's going to happen? So what happens? Look at verse eight. At midnight, the man was startled, <laughs> duh, okay, and he turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So she does exactly up to a point of what Naomi says. She waits, he lays down, falls asleep. She lies down, takes off his sandals, and waits. He wakes up, obviously startled. And it's when she speaks, she goes off the script. She just says, redeem me, be my redeemer, which means marry me, just marry me, redeem us. How is he going to respond? How is he going to respond to this? Well, let's look. Look at verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. He says, yes. He says, yes, I will redeem you. I will redeem you. Because you're a worthy woman. Now, I want to, as an aside, because I know what <laughs> some of you are thinking of, like, should we do this? <laughs> like, I got it. I'll sneak into his house. Sleep at the end of his bed. <laughs> Take off his smelly socks. Okay, it's like, is this, okay, is this an example we should follow? I would say probably not. <laughs> like, all from Naomi and the type of advice that she's giving, it doesn't seem like this is the best advice. I think Ruth is a very obedient daughter-in-law. And, but one, one, one thing I think is at least applicable. If you look at verse 10, I, don't, I forgot to put verse 10 in my notes. He's surprised for a reason. And he's surprised because he says, you could have any man, young or old, rich or poor. Or you could have any young man, rich or poor. Some, something like that. I, again, I forgot to put it in my notes. And what he means is, Ruth, you're the type of woman that could have any guy. And I'm older. I'm an old, um, you could have a rich guy, you could have a poor guy, all the, all the young guys that work on my field, 
they would be willing to marry you. So it seems like in this situation, there's, there is a reason to, for her to explain how I would want you to redeem me. Because it seems like it's not even on his radar of, you really? Do you realize how old I am? There's a reason why she might need to explain how, yes, she would want to marry him. And I feel like in our culture, are there a lot of situations like that? Probably not, but I, you, could think of, you could think of some where it would be totally off the guy's radar and an explanation of, okay, even though I'm in this spot, it might be good. So there's, should we obey it? There's some things that might be applicable, but I think the, the signs of the story would show no, generally speaking. Now, what happens? We're still kind of in a tense moment of, are they going to be the people of high character that it seems that they are? Well, he says yes, and he tells her to stay there and sleep at his feet. Now, this isn't because he's kind of doing some shady business. This is because, again, it's the time of the judges. He's not going to send her walking out in the middle of the night. So they both wake up early in the morning, and they walk out. Now, there's more tension in the story. Because not only does he say yes, he says yes, but. And the but is that there's another redeemer. You see, the, the person that was closest in the family line got first dibs. And where Boaz ranked was number two. There was a guy ahead of him in line. So, in the story arc, where are we now? Okay, things have gone better. Boaz is helping. Ruth, yes, I'll redeem you. But now it comes crashing down because there's another guy that could just ruin everything. What's going to happen in the story? So we start chapter 4, verse 1, with Boaz waking up early and going immediately to the city gate. And at the city gate, he waits for the man. Now, the city gate was not just where you entered the city. It, it actually was where you entered the city, but it wasn't the only purpose. They would make all sorts of legal decisions there. They would make all sorts of um, uh, business decisions there. So he waits for the man, and he sees him coming in. He says, hey, come over, come over. And he pulls 10 of the elders aside, and they are there as witnesses to ratify whatever contract is going to happen. And he describes the situation to the man. Naomi, you know Naomi? Yes, I know Naomi. She wants to sell her land and to have a redeemer. Do you want to redeem the land? And the guy immediately says yes. Oh, he says yes. Because he's thinking, this is perfect. I could work this land, and all I have to do is take care of this old elderly woman who will probably die in not too long, and this is a good business investment. That's what he's thinking. Immediate yes. He doesn't even have to think about it. doesn't even pray on it. You know, it's like, yes, I'll do it. And then Boaz, being a, a smart and wise man, says, but remember Ruth, her daughter-in-law? She comes with Naomi. And he starts to do the math in his head. He's like, okay, well, she's going to live a lot longer. I'm going to have to take care of her the whole time. And even if I marry her and I have a son, if she has a son, then I have to split my inheritance between my current sons. What are they going to think of that? Or is that going to really be good for business? And he starts to do the math quickly in his head, and he immediately changes his mind and says no. And what Boaz does is he turns to the ten elders and says, I want to buy the land, and I want the girl. 
And how does the story end? Look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her. This is how we know that nothing happened that night, because this is the moment where the relationship is consummated. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, Blessed he, or be the Lord who has left you in this day without a Redeemer, who has not left you in this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. So what happens? The guy gets the girl. He, she is rescued. And not only that, but Naomi, who's been very bitter to the Lord, is shown to see that God has redeemed even her. Isn't that a good story? That's like a great Beautiful story. I was telling, telling it to my, um, well, I was telling it to all the kids, but my daughters were the only ones paying attention at dinner. And they were just gripped with the story. I quizzed them of like, you know the time of the judges? Do you, can you name any of the judges? And Grace is like, Abraham. I'm like, no, not quite. And then Annabelle was like, Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> like, not quite. But it's like better answers than I would have. I would have been like, Oscar the Grouch? <laughs> you know, so when I was their age. But it, but it's, it's a great story. It just grips you. Now, how does it connect to Christ? Where is, where is Christ in, in all of this? Have you ever realized as you're reading through the Bible that the Bible is obsessed with genealogies? You know, these are the chapters that we skip. Maybe, can I say that? Okay. These are the chapters like, ah, you know, I'm catching up on my reading plan. You know, it's like the Bible is obsessed with genealogies. Now, why? Why is the Bible obsessed with genealogies? The reason is from the very beginning, we're looking for someone. We're looking for someone who will be born. Genesis 3, 15, God says to Satan, through Eve, an offspring will come, a seed will come, and he will crush your head, even though you bruise his heel. There's a snake crusher that's going to come through the seed of Eve. And then you get to Abraham, and he says, through your offspring, through a seed that's going to come, that all the nations will be blessed. And then you get this weird, random chapter about Judah. You know, you have the story of Joseph, and then this weird, random chapter about Judah who sleeps with his daughter-in-law. It's a really ugly story. And you're thinking, why is this in the Bible? Like, seriously, why is this in the Bible? Well, we get to the end of Genesis, and and Jacob says over Judah, the scepter will never leave you. One of your offspring is going to rule forever. And then we see the line of Judah goes into the promised land, and they take over this huge city called Jericho. And there's one person that survives. You going to know her name? Rahab. She's a prostitute. Rahab the prostitute is the only person saved because she helps the spies of Israel. And who does she marry? She marries this guy named Perez, who's an offspring of Judah. Now let's look at the last verses of the book of Ruth. This is what it says. Ruth 4, 17 through 22. And the, woman of the, neighbor, the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez, who married Rahab, the prostitute. 
who had a son named Boaz, who married a girl named Ruth, who had a son named Obed, who had a son named Jesse, who would be the father to the greatest king in Israel's history, David. And what did God say to David? Second Samuel 7, that an offspring is going to come from David's line that will rule the entire world forever. The Bible's tracking something. Where, where's the thread? Where is it going through? It's not, it's Judah, the random chapter was not random. This book, Ruth, why, why do we get this quaint little love story in the middle of the judges? Why is it here? It's not random. There's tra- it's tracking something. That Jesus would come through the line of David. He would be the true king. All of the Bible is waiting for him. Now, there are other things that we see. I love that line that uh, John quoted from Peter Lightheart a few weeks ago. It says this, Like great novelists, the biblical writers repeat themes, words, or images throughout a book, and it accumulates significance as it goes. So we see the very similar themes throughout Ruth too. It's not just the, it's not just the genealogies. There, there, there's more going on. So for example, Jesus is the greater exile. Yes, Naomi had to leave her people and was in exile. But God, Jesus, was taken out of the city gates and crucified. He was the ultimate exile. Or... Jesus is the greater sojourner. Yes, Ruth left, and she was a refugee in a foreign land at great sacrifice to herself. But Jesus, he left heaven and was a refugee in a foreign land at the ultimate sacrifice to himself. Or you think of Jesus is the greater redeemer. Yes, Boab redeems a, a land and a people and he gets the girl, but God redeems the entire world and a people. He kills the dragon and gets the girl. Or Jesus is the greater providence. There are 84 verses throughout Ruth, and 23 of them mention God. And we see God's hand at work throughout the entire story. But we look at the story of Jesus, and we realize entire empires were used to make it, to make it happen. You have the Persians and the Babylonians would spread out all of the Jews to all these various cities, all these main cities. They're spread out by these empires. And then you have the Greeks conquered the same place. And what do they spread? They spread a common culture and a common language. And then you have the Romans take over, and they provide safety, the Pax Romana, peace, and roads. And when Jesus comes at the perfect time, as Romans 5 says... It's at a time where there's peace. You could spread the word quickly because of the roads. Everyone had a common culture and language because of the Greeks and because of the Persians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians. There are little pockets of Jews throughout every major city that could be used as sinners to start a church plan. The perfect time. God's providence seen. And my favorite this is my favorite, is Jesus is the greatest story. What is the storyline of Ruth? What is the storyline? 
Will you look over here? And I know this is, his, <laughs> I was not an art major, okay? But you see that it's, it's the Cinderella story. Rags to riches, everything is going great. Oh no, what about the other redeemer? What about this crazy story, this crazy plan that Naomi has? And then at the end, she marries Boaz. But if you look at this story and you compare it to the greatest story, Jesus is born to teenage parents in very suspicious circumstances in the same city, Bethlehem. His family flees the same city to protect themselves. He's raised in a hick town called Nazareth, extremely poor. People probably talked about him all the time the way they talked about the Moabite woman, Ruth, because he was born out of wedlock, so they thought. He starts as a carpenter, slaving away in hard labor under the sun. He starts his ministry, obscure street preacher. But over time, he starts to gather followers. Hundreds, thousands of people start to follow him, start to, start to obey him. And he starts to climb and climb and climb. Everyone knows about him. Even the rulers that rule over the entire area are thinking, oh no, they're thinking about their job security. But what happens? He gets betrayed. He gets sold out. All of his best friends desert him. He gets beaten. He gets declared guilty in a kangaroo court. He gets crucified like a thief. And he dies. And for three days, we look at the story and we hold our breath. What's going to happen? What's going to happen with the story? Well, after three days, he kicks, death, he, get, he kicks death in the teeth. He resurrects. He comes back preaching and training those who are going to change the world. And he ascends into heaven, and from then until now, he's been making the entire world his footstool. It goes up. It crashes down, as down as you can possibly go. And it raises up, and it's actually continuing to go up as we speak, the storyline. And here's the implication. <laughs> this is, if we actually believe this, and we actually swallow this truth, we would be different people. Because this is not only Ruth's story, this is not only Jesus' story, this is our story. God is telling a Cinderella story with us. So this, this is my encourage, encouragement to you, okay? We see this in Ruth. We see this all throughout the Bible. When sin is at large, God goes small, often. When sin is at large, God often goes small. So think of this. All of the world is rebelling against God. God chooses a family. Noah, I choose you. I'm going to save you. All of the world has forgotten about God. God chooses a family. Abraham, I choose you. Through your seed, the world will be blessed. All of the world wants to kill the people of God. Egypt wants to kill the people of God. What does he do? He chooses one mom and a faithful sister and a little baby in a river. Moses. And then you get to Jesus. The ultimate example of this. 
The world is sinning at large, and God starts to change the world with a baby. And then we get to us, the church. And what does Paul say to the Corinthians? This is what he says, verse 26 of chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Us, what is weak in the world, to shame the strong. When the world is sinning at large, God often goes small. So here's the encouragement. You look out in the world, you get on Facebook, you turn on the news. Does it seem to be going well out there? <laughs> no, it doesn't. What are we to do? In a time where Christians are seem to be pushed against more and more and more, marginalized more and more and more, outside of the United States, Christians are dying more than ever. Persecution across the world. We actually have it pretty good in our country. But it looks dark. What should we do? Go small. Have a time with God tomorrow. Love your neighbor. Love your friends around you. Share the gospel with one person. And what might seem like a, just a very small thing, a quaint little love story in the middle of Judges, might just, in fact, change the entire world. One little story at a time. Let's pray. If you found this encouraging, we hope you'll subscribe or follow for more content. Or go to our website, campusfellowship.com, for other resources. Campus Fellowship is a student organization whose goal is to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. Thanks for listening.